This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. Hello, it's springtime 2022, and this is the first time since springtime 2020 when we first started working on high theory that Kim and I are in the same place and the same room. We are very excited and we wanted to take this opportunity to make this happy announcement. Sharonik and I are pleased to announce that High Theory is entering into partnership with the New Books Network. The New Books Network is an amazing podcast platform with multiple channels that produces interview-based episodes on new and recent academic publications. They have recently begun partnering with existing podcasts, and we are thrilled to join them. In order to have our entire show on the New Books Network, we are going to relaunch our episodes from the beginning, one episode per day. To our loyal listeners, we want to say a heartfelt thank you. We could not have stuck this out without you. And to our brand new listeners, we are super excited that there will be more of you every day and we say welcome. And if you like what we do, please spread the word. Today we are talking about social psychoanalysis with Aki Mukherjee. Aki, would you mind introducing yourself? Thank you, Sharonik. My name is Aki Mukherjee. I'm Professor of English and World Literatures at the University of Oxford and a Fellow of Wadham College. And I'm talking to you about social psychoanalysis because I have recently published a book called Unseen City, The Psychic Lives of the Urban Poor. And this is an area of long-standing interest, the intersection of psychoanalysis, history of medicine and literary and cultural studies. My other areas of expertise are post-colonial studies and Victorian literature and culture. Thank you so much for coming to High Theory. My first question is, what the heck is social psychoanalysis? So I would say that, you know, it probably has three meanings. The first is that the kind of psychoanalysis or the translations of psychoanalysis in an international frame that I'm examining move the focus away from the individual individuated subject to the notion that subject itself is the product of a culture, product of society, and therefore has different formations, different cultural influences 
different, you know, paradigms of health and ill health and different kind of coping mechanisms, different definitions of trauma, etc. So the first definition would be that there is not one size fits all and, you know, the family structure itself on the basis of which we understand individual growth is wildly different from one culture to another. So the importance of the social dimension in understanding the inner world would be the first definition. The second definition, of course, is, you know, it's kind of like hitting at one of the key prejudices of psychoanalysis. And this is something, you know, Freud uh, writes about in Civilization and its discontents that in a way the primitive is doesn't have an unconscious, the primitive is the unconscious. And the thinking is that it's almost as if people are afflicted by some kind of collective malady whether it is war or colonization or the lack of modernity the lack of civilization etc then they cannot be thought of as individuals they can only be thought of as a group and social psychoanalysis in a way helps us disaggregate this idea of the sovereign self from an ailing community so let's say if my demographics are the ones that are affected by poverty then I do not assume that almost everyone is affected the same way. And that's what statistics show that even in sort of slum habitats, not everyone has psychosocial disability that can be connected to, you know, the extreme sort of deprivation of slum habitats. So again, social psychoanalysis would say that, yes, we think about the subject socially, but we do not reduce the subject to a huddled mass. And I would say the third form is kind of also looking at because so much of the free clinic movement that I have written about depends on lay counselors that are drawn from the very communities they treat. Looking at what Sudhir Kakar calls the vulnerable expert, that someone who has themselves, who understands the very societies from where their patients are drawn. So in almost all the initiatives that I have worked with, you know, there is that element of immersion in the social, in the cultural, in the political, one of the NGOs I worked with in Mumbai called Pukar calls them barefoot researchers. So people who are mm. drawn from, let's say, a non-registered slum who are then trained by psychoanalysts, psychologists to interview the slum population, but in the languages that that population speaks. That's, I would say, the third meaning of social psychoanalysis that, you know, in a way it also imbricates the therapist. It's, mm. you know, the therapist is not simply this sort of floating head subjects presumed to know, but somebody who is part of this living, suffering and surviving population. What happens to the body in social psychoanalysis? Because, you know, we began the conversation by you talking about de-individuation when we move from psychoanalysis conventionally, as we understand it, to social psychoanalysis. But there is the whole kind of tradition of what happens to the body of the analyst and the analysand in that space. You mean what happens to the psychoanalytic dyad? What in... happens to the psychoanalytic dyad, but also insofar as psychoanalysis of the individual takes into account the individual body and its parts, as we represent our own bodies to ourselves, what happens to all of that when it's not just one individual? That's a very interesting point because I'm not always thinking about group therapy. So I do cover a very, I mean, this was actually one of the happiest experiences in writing the book. I worked with a couple of Turkish psychotherapists. They do horticultural therapy in Hackney in London. And, uh, but most of the instances are actually one-on-one. -on -one. 
The only thing is the duration is short and often the therapists know, you know, so for instance, this NGO in Bengaluru that I worked with, they know that, you know, these villagers coming from surrounding towns and villages of Bangalore, they're not going to be able to afford that bus ride again and again. So they cut to the chase very quickly. Mm -hmm. So one of, you know, my case study that, you know, I got from one of my NGO work um, in India that I really found very fascinating was this farmer who came to the therapists and kept saying that, you know, I can't sleep. I keep dreaming of the Red Bull. And this is somebody who doesn't speak English, speaking in Kannada. And then the therapist tries to figure out what the current stressors are. And one of the current stressors is this farmer's daughter is about to get married. And there is a fear of crop failure. And so they start talking about that. They start talking about whether the Red Bull is kind of the fear of insolvency and the fear of going in the red. Now, these are English phrases. So, you know, I mean, the college educated psychotherapist or lay counsellor is well aware that this may not be exactly the vocabulary, the even the psychic vocabulary, the person who is reporting this plague of dreams is facing. But one of the very interesting things, and this goes back to also, you know, the way Lacanian theory works, is it's not about a primordial truth. It's about, you know, what you make of, you know, almost a survivalist strategy, which helps you take control of the narrative. Mm -hmm. And the person stops getting these nightmares about a bull chasing them once they talk through these eventualities that maybe it's my fear of insolvency, maybe it's my fear of crop failures, maybe it's my fear I won't be able to pay dowry and my daughter will be beaten. And I have had lengthy discussions with the lay counselors and they say, well, we just don't have time to go to childhood. You know, so there's this kind of abbreviating that happens. So the bodies are very much there. The mental worlds are there with the bodies, but here the therapist on that knife edge is having to make a very quick decision about how best to get to the truth that will give a little more capacity and capability to somebody who's not able to sleep. Does that to some extent answer your question? Yeah, it totally makes sense. We've already started talking about methods. So my next question on that note, how do we use social psychoanalysis? So I am not a psychoanalyst. I'm not a clinician. One of the things I felt that my use of, you know, what I've done in this book is I have read literature and case studies almost contrapuntally, you know, to use that sort of Saidian word. Mm-hmm. What am I looking at? I'm looking at subject formation. I'm looking at illness, death, but also looking at forms of social death. One of the case studies, again, this is from India, is of a woman who suffers from terrible incontinence. And so what can psychoanalysis do? Psychoanalysis builds on talk therapy. And when this person goes to the therapist, who's actually a psychiatrist who's adopted psychotherapeutic methods, the very interesting thing for me about a certain kind of social psychoanalysis is this investment in rehabilitating the person to life, to family. So it's not focusing and fixating on the illness paradigm, but kind of saying how best can we, because these are people who are discombobulated by mental illness and who are losing work, therefore losing wages, you know, and so there is that need to rehabilitate them to work, rehabilitate them to family structures. So there is a long 
process that ensues from there, from the point in which this woman says, I'm suffering from incontinence as a grown woman and there is nothing wrong with my body, the doctor says, so what's wrong with me? And a kind of sexual etiology is discovered in the process. But one of the first things the therapist says, and this is something I really love about community psychoanalysis is, one of the first things the psychoanalyst says is, don't drink too much water before traveling or when you know you won't have access to a bathroom. And for me, it sounds very banal, but for me, I think one of the things social psychoanalysis can do is think of the person who's discombobulated by mental illness as somebody who needs to be brought back to the world, you mm -hmm. know, not treating them as the afflicted, but as people with certain disabilities and difficulties whose capacity needs to be restored. And where does literature come in all of this? I mean, I do think that, you know, kind of a humanistic understanding helps you understand not just the illness, not just sees the poor person as defined by poverty, but also, you know, resilience, also resourcefulness and happiness. You know, how do you see sort of like, you know, pockets of happiness, pocket, you know, these kind of moments of triumph, even sort of people who are at the intersection of very difficult, let's say, migration war. So a lot of the case studies that I gathered in London, for instance, from migrant communities, I mean, these are people who are manifesting symptoms now, but who have horrendous histories of trafficking, of genital mutilation, of being caught in global wars, etc., which are kind of, in a way, coming back to take their symbolic due. But these are lives where, again, that social psychoanalysis takes on another dimension, that these are it is not just sort of common unhappiness, but these are people who are both suffering PTSD from these exceptional events, but they're also in situations of continuous stress because their own debilitation is not allowing them to work to earn wages, their lack of English is not even allowing them to tell their general practitioner mm. what the difficulty is. So, you know, there's this category called medically unexplained that a lot of therapists I work, they're not medically unexplained, they're medically untold, they're medically untold stories. But when you speak the same language, let's say when you speak Bangla or when you speak Turkish, you realize that what the British GP had thought was medically unexplained is just a, an inability to express themselves in English how will social psychoanalysis save the world? I mean, I do think that to some extent, what it is doing is letting people in that world in the first place, because a lot of people, as I said, who are consigned to social debts, who are seen as medically unexplained, mm -hmm. you know, it is kind of giving them a platform, if you will. When I worked in Kolkata with a wonderful mental health organization called Anjali, this is run by Ratnabali Rai, and I worked with an initiative of theirs called Jonu Manush, you know, which is the psyche of the people, if you will. And almost all the women, you know, the seven counselors I worked with, they're all drawn from the Rajarhat municipality. So it's a very intelligent use of the corporation structure. And one of the things that these lay counselors told me is that, you know, this is what they were doing. So they have a kiosk in Rajarhat where they meet the local populace who present with all these you know, symptoms of I can't sleep, I have anxiety. Sometimes it's a mother-in-law, daughter-in-law yeah. conflict. Sometimes it's like, I feel I'm cursed. I feel I have uh, some planetary problems. And there's something that was happening in the Bengaluru sites as well. And they were very keen to tell me, these counselors very keen to tell me that their commitment is not just to mental health, but to social equality. And that this work lifted them who had many of them, one of them actually said she had 17 years of trauma in her life. She was in a deeply violent relationship for 17 years. So to go back to that idea of 
social psychoanalysis implicating the therapist. But mm -hmm. here we are looking at a mobility structure where it's not just about the people who are being saved, but the secular healer, mm -hmm. you know, the secular, the, the person who's doing the secular administering of souls, right. it is also providing them with pathways of becoming citizen subjects. So I don't know if it can save the world, but I do think that with social psychoanalysis, we are looking at something a lot less problematic than the representation by proxy we have when we as deeply incorporated or deeply sort of privileged subjects of late liberalism as with the freudian free clinic movement you're looking at a kind of relay where i'm able to write this but i'm not presuming to you know go marching into a slum and start gathering stories i don't think i will be very successful in that and so right. i'm very interested in being a little cog in this relay between the barefoot researcher the psychoanalyst or psychotherapist who's training the barefoot researcher, the organization that's hosting the psychotherapist or psychoanalyst and me who's collecting these stories and trying to look at certain patterns, you know, what works when people are resource poor, what works when they don't have the right language, what works when they don't have the traditional time that's devoted to therapy and creating these kind of patterns and structures. And I hope someone will look at it and say, look, look at all these non-adjacent initiatives that seem to be doing similar things. Right. So I don't have very big aims, but I do think that the insights I have showed yeah. would be extraordinarily helpful for anyone who is thinking about social equality. Because I mean, and that's the one thing, uh, Sharon, when I first started working, you know, I was talking to so many NGOs that were invested in poverty alleviation, but none of them were directly working on mental health. And I am saying in no uncertain terms that you cannot think about equity without demanding equity of the unconscious. Yeah, that's that's just wonderful. And I think that's a great and hopeful note to end on. Thank you so much for coming to High Theory and talking to us about social psychoanalysis. Thank you, Sharonik. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonic Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.